Welcome to Open Plaza, a podcast created by the Hispanic Theological Initiative. Each episode, we focus on a topic that matters to you, whether you're in the field, the academy, or the clergy. My name is Stephen DiTrolio Coakley, and today we bring you a conversation between Xochitl Alviso and Matilde Moros about LGBT issues in the church and the academy. For more information about today's talk, go to htiopenplaza.org. So tonight we're here to um, have a conversation about LGBTQ youth, working with students that are LGBTQ youth and Latinx, um, and sharing some personal stories, family stories, uh, professor stories, as to how we manage a topic that in some contexts may, may seem as a very difficult topic, and yet how we navigate this and not necessarily make it seem difficult. Uh, I am trained in social ethics, a Christian social ethicist, and the topic of sexuality in Christian ethics in some contexts tends to be moralized as evil, as sin, much like the topic of women and even the understanding of gender has been. So in the space of uh, teaching about Christianity in seminaries, etc., I have been able to teach, allowed to, invited to teach on the topic of human sexuality. And that has been very interesting at that level. But I found myself teaching undergraduates introductory courses and other topical courses and found that even more invigorating because I find that youth quite often don't have the support system, are coming in new from their homes, their hometowns, and have never had a space where they're accepted, where they're welcome, where their life is uh, being mirrored or reflected or represented in the coursework, the readings, um, as, as a valid life experience. And when I started teaching this, um, my story begins with my own child coming out as non-binary. And I know that you have a similar story, Sochil, and wanted to share with our amigos, amigas out there about language, teaching methodologies, and how our own lived experience is reflected in the classroom. So I don't know if you want to share uh, the story that we were um, chismeando about earlier uh, in terms of your own growing up. Yeah. Um, one of the things you just said, you talked about valid human experience. And so often people who identify as lesbian, gay, bi, trans, um, intersex even, right? And asexual. And asexual, yes, non-binary. One of the things that people will comment on is this experience of being talked about as an issue, right? So as soon as we make somebody's very personhood and existence an issue, we have invalidated their experience, their existential reality. So that's just even... Um, something you just said that just triggered that thought for me. And one of the ways in my family that people's diverse sexual expressions, gender expressions, was immediately, um, not immediately, was very explicitly validated um, is the story that we were talking about earlier. 
Um, I was about nine or 10 years old. We were at a family gathering. There were a lot of us relatives together, a lot of cousins, aunts and uncles. And one of my aunts, my tia Sofia is her name. Um, she was one of our favorites. So we're all waiting for her to arrive. And we, you know, we all see her car. We recognize it. And my tia Sofia always arrived with my tia Leti. And tia, you know, is the Spanish word for aunt. And Leti was not actually related to us, so she wasn't actually my biological aunt. But Sofia and Leti were always together that we just called them both tia Sofia and tia Leti. Well, that day, you know, when she arrived, an older cousin of mine told me, that's not your tia Sofia. You have to call her Uncle Tony now. Um, and I was like, Uncle Tony, that's my tia Sofia. <laughs> and then um, they're like, no, you, you need to call her Uncle Tony. And I was just like, so I, I, I'm young. So I just, you know, I go check in with my parents. So I go to my parents and my mom specifically. And I said, mom, my cousin so-and-so is telling me that I need to call my tia Sofia Uncle Tony. And uh, she said, yes, actually, you can just say, you know, that's your Uncle Tony. And I was like, okay. So my tia Sofia is my Uncle Tony. She says, yes. I was like, okay. And it was really that simple. I was nine or 10 years old. And my tia's transition from female to male, from woman to man, I'm not even sure anymore because, you know, distant aunt that now, you know, I'm not in touch with as much. It was just made so a non-issue. Her transition was a non-issue. Her experience was validated by my mom just telling me, yes, that's your Uncle Tony. And so for you within your family, within people you trusted, a community um, non-event mm -hmm. um, allowed you to see the possibility of people uh, and their experience as very normative, mm -hmm. uh, from cousins to your parents, realize that this was just one of the many expansive expressions of being human. And Growing up in Latin America, I had the experience of people not being so open or accepting mm -hmm. and also in the church. Uh, and, and yet the possibility of people transforming and thinking differently about different things in other ways was mm -hmm. very oh. much the reality. So I was pretty much in shock when people didn't consider this a possibility, that people could be um, open about their sexuality later on understanding gender differently from just the male female mm -hmm. binary mm -hmm. and so for me uh i think it was in my theological studies doing work on women uh, i began to understand that when we talk about gender it's not just about women that we need to also work on issues of masculinities and lgbtqia mm -hmm. which are the you know, the initials for all of these different categories. And that theologically there was a, a sort of a block for many people in my community, but it's mm. very much a social thing. And when family structures are able to shift and create sort of a normative or a, a regular space for people to just be, mm -hmm. uh, it's very um, refreshing. Mm. So in my own family, when my child came out, I was already teaching this and my response was like, well, this couldn't be the more perfect family because we're very open and accepting and welcoming. Mm -hmm. And still 
you know, the process of changing pronouns, of changing names, of working with other family members, older family members, community members, because when someone is coming out as who they really feel they are, it's not just the immediate family. It's an entire community. And mm -hmm. so to have support, and as you said, to be validated as a human, right, a person who's experiencing life alongside with others, mm -hmm. it also takes support. And I find mm. that in my teaching, just being open and affirming in the classroom, uh, considering not only pronouns, but the reality that some people might not even be comfortable with that, that they're mm. still in process to, to teach people to be community and be supportive. I think the younger generation among themselves have done this, but in formal spaces like a classroom or a church setting or a family setting to be advocates mm. and not just allies, but advocates in terms of mm -hmm. really understanding that our own experience has always been that way, that everyone lives in some sort of closet, that mm -hmm. everyone feels the boundaries of society of what is considered appropriate or, or inappropriate, mm -hmm. that one's identity is shaped. And if one fits what society says one is, right, upon birth, then one is cisgendered, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But one still could have a sexuality that doesn't fit what normative cisgender fits. So, mm -hmm. so the possibilities for people are so wide and what we call fluid that I just wanted to sort of have a conversation about how for you and for me studying theology and living in a Latinx community sometimes may mean that we come into conflict not just this beautiful story you shared mm -hmm. of um, having an open and affirming experience that shaped your life but maybe the conflict areas in your own teaching with your students or in other spaces as well. Um, so as I said, with my own child, even though for us internally it was very, not I'm not going to say easy, but smooth mm -hmm. to to help move through a change, um, our relationship with the rest of the world continues to be one in which we advocate and we promote mm -hmm. uh, genuine acceptance mm -hmm. and understanding. So our work as parents and siblings with the rest of the family so one of the stories that comes to mind was when I was a teenager and my church was part of um, a group going to Nicaragua. And this wasn't to go paint or to build latrines or to do that kind of mission work. It was to translate interviews with all sorts of government and church officials mm -hmm. in the Sandinista Nicaragua. It was a church trip to go see what was happening. It was before Witness for Peace went. And I was hired to go as a translator. Now, what had happened previously in Cuba um, was that LGBTQ folk were persecuted initially. And so there was a group of lawyers, LGBTQ lawyers, two of them, that wanted to come with us. And because the host family uh, was related to one of our members and they were church folk the group in the U.S. decided we could not accept the two lawyers because of what would the church say um. that to me these were all adults that I loved pastors that I respected mm 
mm-hmm. activists in the church, people who were doing this um, as representatives of an organization that I love. Mm. I was so shocked and even hurt to see the exclusion of people that otherwise were compañeras, compañeros in in all sorts of work. At that time, we were working with the sanctuary movement, and we were on our way to Nicaragua. Mm-hmm. And this particular incident allowed me to see how easy it is for people who, even people who would say that they're very progressive, that mm-hmm. theologically they're progressive, to be exclusive mm-hmm. and to dehumanize mm-hmm. another's experience. Even though they saw the importance of what these lawyers wanted to do, mm-hmm. they just could not include the lawyers. Mm-hmm. So those two lawyers went on their own. Mm-hmm. Wow. But that was a, a very sort of impactful experience in my youth Mm -hmm. and so I think I've been very sensitive to that since Mm -hmm. then Uh, knowing how women are treated in the church how sexuality is deemed as evil in some spaces Mm -hmm. um, how heteronormativity or meaning people who are who see themselves as women and see themselves as men are expected to partner in that way Mm -hmm. for procreation only how the church promotes that mm-hmm. as part of why people are created, why humans are created. It just does not allow for an awful lot of expression mm-hmm. in terms of lived experience. Um, and the judgmentalism that comes, the moralizing that comes with understanding the world to only come in that one very small speckle of mm-hmm. a human experience um, because truth is that our youth are saying that 45% or more of youth are saying that they really don't identify in those ways, Mm -hmm. that they're more fluid Mm -hmm. with how they see themselves in terms of gender and sexuality. So things are changing and maybe things have been uh, Mm -hmm. different before. And so I don't know what what story with students or your lived experience you might want to share with regard to an impactful moment that was not so positive as Mm -hmm. a family moment. Right. Well, first, I just want to comment on something you said just about how in that moment, you know, during that trip with that group of people, just the one fact, right, of them identifying as LGBTQ was the point that one identity marker that someone will latch onto as the defining thing about this person. So the wholeness of their being just got reduced to this one thing around which they will then exclude, right, that person um, because of that. So just, I think it's so important to just pause to realize what we've done in that moment is de- like, like literally dehumanize them. We have taken away so much more of who they are. We've stripped them and reduced them to one aspect of their being that we have deemed the defining one and a defining one in a negative way. Like I just think about, I, I so often get stuck there thinking like, how did we end up deciding that we can still call that Christian? That moment, that act, that practice that we say we're doing that because we're Christian is 
a real sticking point for me still. And the connection of calling ourselves Christian and excluding people for their gender, their sexuality, and then other identity markers, right? Mm -hmm. We have the experience of race. Mm -hmm. We have the experience of gender when we used to think in normative ways as churches, right? That the world was either black or white or mm -hmm. male or female, right? We even quote that from scripture as if, right, that is the only way of being human. And right. what we are doing is, um, I think, hiding mm -hmm. behind what we think is safe. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. We're scared to explore the fullness of who we are. God mm -hmm. has created us to be much more yeah. than a category of race mm -hmm. or gender or mm -hmm. class or any of these other markers mm -hmm. of identity. Mm -hmm. And when we can't see the fullness of a person and we only see that one marker, then we have created these superior and inferior categories. Mm -hmm. A hierarchy of valuing people differently based on, you know, some decision we made about what counts. Yeah. So one of the ways that I experience, um, right, the tensions or the conflicts between religion and sexuality and gender expressions is just in my very own classroom. I teach undergraduate students, and I'm uh, from the religious studies department. So first of all, you know, students have to kind of overcome their own fear of what it means to be in a religious studies class <laughs> because they assume that someone's going to, or they're afraid, right, that someone's going to be teaching them a religion, right, in some kind of um, proselytizing, right, or doctrinal way. And, you know, so I always have to frame everything as like, this is the academic study of religions, you know, this is a religious studies class. And, um, and so students, you know, get a little more comfortable with that. But definitely, they they also express, you know, as we go along in the semester, their own um, tentativeness, right? And kind of like um, hesitancy with engaging religion. I mean, this is undergrad students, you know, in 2018, you know, now we're in 2019, but like last semester, right? Um, because their primary associations with religion and Christianity specifically is that they are homophobic, right? That they are hypocritical and too, politi too political. In their engagements, you know, in like nation politics, they bring their, you know, particular kind of moral positions to politics. And so their, you know, impressions of Christianity are the top ones are negative. And so when I get to teach queer theory or queer theology, and, you know, the way queer theory intersects and kind of in, yeah, engages with religious studies or theology, you can just see their faces, right, of just like the surprise, right, of like, oh, there are some Christians or there are some religious people who affirm the expansive expressions of sexuality and gender. Like they really just don't expect that. So that's always a nice moment in the classroom. And then you can also see the students in the classroom in that very moment for whom this is very uh, disruptive to what they know and concerning, right? You can see their body language kind of tighten up. 
You can see what they do often is that they just look forward or down at their desk and they don't I'm engaged with me. You know, don't look at me while I'm, you know, lecturing or presenting something through the PowerPoint. And um, but so in the classroom, which is, you know, not a Christian space, obviously, not a religious space. It's an academic space where we're studying religion. You can see all of the different places that they come from in terms of what they expect religion or Christianity to be about in relation to gender and sexuality. And so right there you have the people for whom this kind of like the intersection of queer theory with Christianity is good news. And you can see the ones for whom this feels very problematic. And so like keeping friendly, non, um, I try not to like, I actually am one of those professors who's probably pretty, you know, you know, more radically left. And uh, yeah, just more radical in my political and like religious, you know, identifications, but they don't know that. I really try to be one of those professors who kind of like, just says, you know, some people approach it this way, some people approach it this way, this is the experience, you know, and I try to just expose them to that kind of diversity of experience with religion. Um, and so you can see that even the students who are being challenged in that moment are can't disengage or won't disengage because they've also experienced me as very open. open. Yeah. I find that when teaching either seminary students or um, undergraduates, not in a religious uh, department, but in a gender sexuality department, also being open is the key to allowing people from all kinds of backgrounds and all kinds of positions to at least learn to be open to the possibility that people have various ways of expressing themselves. Uh, I think that doing that in the classroom and what we've done in our home has allowed me to see how that's not the case mm -hmm. everywhere. Mm -hmm. And that by doing that in the classroom, I'm providing a space for people who don't have that in their homes or out in the rest of society. So um, when you say queer theory, I just want to clarify that when we use queer theory, um, this is a valid academic field and it's much more than gender and sexuality. It's about seeing through a different lens. And um, in Latinx studies, we have one of the pioneers of queer theory in Gloria Saldua. And I have found students who may be very straight, very conservative, um, you know, come from a space where they don't have this sort of experience of gender and sexuality, but they will find themselves in queer theory because there's something about them that has experienced uh, brokenness or woundedness and through which they can then process that. So I find that not bringing my necessarily my perspective on whatever politics, religion, or whatever else, but just exposing students to material out there and being open myself has allowed for an openness at various levels in terms of the intersections of people. So I just wanted this this conversation to be about what faculty trained in religion and 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 society as I was in ethics for you is uh, feminism and religion, how we're approaching this topic with young people 
what our experiences have been. And so that people out, out there listening to this might sort of think through what they're going through and where we are in this, at this point in the 21st century, um, not just with our young people, but in terms of our churches and families and how this is everywhere. I remember in the 80s when there was an AIDS epidemic, and that was a moment in the churches in which people were really scared of sexuality and were demonizing people who were very ill. And it wasn't until people saw the AIDS quilt or met a parent of a child that had died or saw the human face of this that they could be transformed. And so I just want to make it clear that the human face of gender and sexuality is every face that you see, whether it's your own in the mirror or someone else that you come across. So it doesn't mean that we're going to go out and find a quilt for LGBTQ youth. Um, it means that we have to learn to see possibilities in each other uh, with regard to fluidity. Mm -hmm. That's really nice. I like the way you say that every face, you know, is a face of gender and sexuality. And I just think about what we can do in our classrooms is practicing, helping one another practice making space for each other's existence. Um, and that just makes a lot of sense in a world in which we all live and we all have to share. I want to thank you, Sochil, for joining me in this conversation. It's just uh, musings on our lived experience in the classroom and in our families. And maybe there are people out there who are feeling lonely with, with this, either teaching it or living it. And um, it's a reality in all of our churches. It's a reality everywhere uh, in society, not just the U.S. And there's a lot of backlash and a lot of negativity out there. So to keep it on a up note and a hopeful note, there are a few of us out there who are trying to create open spaces for youth and for each other. Space is not just open, but that where we can flourish. Mm -hmm.